In today's episode of Bookable Space, we're joined by Sharon Skinner. Sharon will be reading to us from and talking about Lost and Found. Sharon, thanks so much for joining us today. Yvonne, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, that's wonderful because I'm excited. I'm already looking forward to hearing you read. So I'm glad that you're excited too. Let's dive right in. So can you tell us a little bit about Lost and Found, please? So Lost and Found is basically it's a mashup of Peter Pan, Oliver Twist, and Steampunk. It's a middle grade adventure. It's basically about two kids from rival street gangs who are orphans and who end up being forced to work together to save their mates from a bunch of kidnapping smugglers. It already sounds intriguing. Could we have a reading, please? Absolutely. And I'm going to start with chapter one. And this introduces the land, the, the world, and my character, Gage. Oi, get up. Gage woke to a hard kick to his backside. He sat up fuzzy-brained and bleary-eyed, darting looks around the dim bolt hole. Where is everyone? Out where you should be. Chex hauled back to give him another kick. He managed to roll aside so the blow only grazed his ribs. The high-pitched blast of the second shift whistle made him jump up with a start. Ding, dang it. He'd slept longer than he'd planned. He'd come back to the hidey later than usual, his pockets still light, and even though he'd smushed into the familiar huddle of bodies, sleep had been a rotten teaser. And now Chex was bruising him with his filthy bunions. Empty nest times! Chuck Chex pulled back his leg for another kick. Gage dodged the blow and dug around under the pile of rags for his worn-out boots. The attic space above the noisy gear factory felt more like a fort than a nest to him, but Chex had chosen the name, and no one, including Gage, was prepared to stand up to him, especially not over something as piddling as naming a bolt hole. After all, he was their pack leader, as well as the eldest and biggest of them, not to mention the meanest. Didn't expect to see you so late, Gage said, flopping down to pull on his boots. I bet you didn't. Otherwise, you'd like us not been lazing about still. Chex's face twisted up in an ugly half smile and he balled up his fists. And I'm as taking a boss's day off. You got something to say about it? Nah, nah, Gage scrambled to his feet. Just surprised, that's all. He tucked his ragged shirt into his trousers and yanked his gear bag off its crooked nail. He pulled the flap open and peered in at his cracked goggles and rusty breather. What's wrong? Chex tilted his head. Think I'd rob you in your sleep? Nah, Chex. Course not. Just doing a look-see, numberizing what I got. What you got is a nice cozy place to sleep and mates what depend on one another to provide. And you hain't been pulling your weight. Gage tried to not look guilty, but he could tell Chex knew, knew he'd been out searching. Again, I told you to let him go. Chex ground the words between clenched teeth. They're gone, and that's the end of it. But it wasn't. Not for Gage. Wow, I love that you do the voices. Like, thank you ever so much for that. It was such a treat. <laughs> That's my old theater training and reading to kids. I think that it just kicks in. <laughs> I absolutely love it. 
So the book explores themes like family, belonging, and identity. Where did the idea for the book come from? Well, Yvonne, you know, we're writers, and there's always a little autobiography in everything we do. So I, if you look at my bulk of work, the majority of my books actually deal with relationships, particularly family relationships, mother-daughter relationships, and kids being forced to get along. And I think that's because I had four brothers and a sister growing up. <laughs> So now you're getting back at everybody? <laughs> no, it's it's actually, I think, you know, I'm working through some of those challenges because all of my, uh, when I have kids who are, who end up not liking each other to start with, but then ending up liking each other and working together, I think it's sort of working through some of that understanding of differences. I think it's important that we understand that we're all different. We all bring different strengths to the table. And so I'm, Constantly, I think, kind of processing that for myself and in my own world. And also, I really do do, you know, not that it's therapeutic or anything. Um, ahem. I write a lot about mother-daughter relationships. <laughs> um, but in this particular book, you know, the kids are all orphans and they're, it's dealing with found family because in life, Found family is so critical to all of us. The network of support that we have, that we build in the world, is generally made up of found family. I love that acknowledgement of it because it can be such a beautiful thing. Um, and then sometimes, I mean, you do have to work for those relationships and work on them. So it's really nice to kind of read a book that would address those, you know, those challenges and to, you know, take them head on. So, could we have another reading, please? Absolutely. I'm going to introduce you to my secondary character. There really is um, a lot to be said for the relationship between these two, as we just talked about. But this is how we meet Wind. I told you to get out of our hiding. Buller's face twisted into a snarl of flesh. Wind stood her ground. That look had won him his name, his position as the Dartlings pack second, and had been once one of their best weapons against encroaching streeters. Many a rumble had been avoided due to Buller's ugly mug, meaning her mates had been saved many a bloodied nose and broken lip, or worse. It had once been her favorite thing about him, the only thing, she reminded herself, since he actually had no other qualities to list. As I recall, she said. This particular Heidi was found by none other than myself, mine by rights of finders keepers. She pressed herself against the back wall of the cramped space, her eyes darting to check over Buller's shoulder in case any other members of her ex-gang were waiting to give her another what's for. Her ribs were still bruised from the pummeling they'd given her last week during her official relief of duty and turnout. That's a laugh, she thought. Nothing relieving about being beaten on the way out by the very mates who once looked up to you. That's when you was still one of us Dartlings. Own what Dartlings turf is on. Buller's face turned red, but an ugly smile crawled across his lips. But you ain't a darling anymore. He was right, of course, though she'd hoped he wouldn't call her bluff or that he'd at least have her be just this once. But why would he? 
he probably thought she was thinking, rethinking her decision to step down as the Dartlings pack leader. Not that she could. No, she'd made the choice, her brothers over the pack. Not that there had been much of a choice. Family was everything. There was no going back. But Buller wouldn't understand that. Most Dartlings would likely only turn away from her, shunning her as a deserter. But there were a few, like Buller, who had chafed at her leadership enough to want to take it out on the girl who'd once bested them, just to make a point. Not to mention, he still blamed her for the loss of their warmest and best bolt hole. It hadn't been her fault. Someone had nickered on them, but she'd been in charge when it happened, which made it her responsible. And now he had assumed the number one spot. Buller had everything to lose if she decided to try and worm her way back into the pack of streeters. Wynne sighed and stuck her hand inside her jacket pocket, wrapping her fingers around the stick she'd sharpened by scrubbing it along the coarse brick walls till the end was as dangerous as the knife she'd given up. Along with everything else except her ragged filter mask, there would be no reasoning with Buller. He was determined to prove his new position, and since he hadn't had to earn it through normal means, he'd want to use this as an example that he deserved it. She bent her knees, slid down the wall a few inches to make him think she'd given up, and got ready to run. You know, one thing I find quite fascinating, so there's a lot about place and kind of ownership of place and finding place and losing place and what that might feel like. And so the book is set in a place called Landings. And I'm really curious what it makes possible for you to create a place for a world for the story to happen. And how do you develop that sense of place? So everything that I write starts from character. And it's usually the characters in my head, the voices in my head, and they clamor until I let them out. And so this book started a little differently. This book, I had an idea that I really wanted to do a steampunk middle grade, but I wanted to base it on the Peter Pan uh, kind of books, but I didn't want it to be too directly interpretive of Peter Pan. So I thought, well, what can I do? And that's when I decided I'm going to mash it up with the Oliver setting from Charles Dickens. So I got some Barry and some Dickens and I smashed them together and I built landings as my version of London back in Charles Dickens time but made it landings because it's more of a a dock city, more of a port, so that I could have my smugglers and all of that going on as well with the ships and everything. So that's really where landings came from. World building is kind of another sweet spot for me. That's probably why I write a lot of fantasy and, you know, everything I do is pretty much speculative fiction. I love the world building. I love to be in the worlds. When I read, that's where I love to be the most is in new and unusual worlds. And so building this world was so much fun and building the, the voice of this book. And I think I've done a really nice job with voice overall in this book. Actually, I think I really did a great job with voice in this book. Um, I kind of uh, feel like I really hit a peak on this one. I just love the made up words, the 
ding dang it's and the rusty cogs and the things that I was able to do with language in this and to really develop a world that you could feel like you could sink into and really sense and viscerally be in. That's that's something I love doing. I love that. I know as a reader, I love being able to fall into a, into a world, into a book, into a story and feel like welcome right from the first page. And then I also kind of, you know, you feel like you can see it and feel it and smell it and, and taste it just along with the character. So I absolutely love books that have those well-developed senses of place that just invite you in and you can forget that you're in, you know, wherever you are in and suddenly you're in landings or wherever the book takes you. Could we have one final reading, please? I would love to give you another reading. By the time Gage made it back to Lawston's turf, it was the twee hours of the morning. None but the busiest of factories were running at this hour, and the nest would be dark and crowded with skinny bodies, all jostling for warmth and trying to find the peace of sleep. He'd managed to make it this far without disrupting the crawly inside his shirt. But checks would knock him into last year if he brought something nasty into the nest and woke the gang to boot. He needed somewhere to inspect the thing that still clung to his ribs beneath his tattered shirt and jacket. And he needed to make sure it hadn't tucked anything under his skin. That's all he needed. An explosion of vermin growing inside his chest. He needed somewhere with light, but no curious nosers to bother with. He snuck around the looming warehouses and into the narrow back alley, three buildings down from the gearworks. At the back of a greasy building, a dark doorway held the exact place. The janitor's shop hugged the back corner of the Parnell Pipeworks. Pipers only worked two shifts, with the dead hours of the night set aside for mechanical maintenance and cleaning up the debris from the day's work or so the schedule said. Gage knew that the current janitor would have slipped off by now to tip a bottle with one of his cronies. After a quick look about and a long listen, he worked at the loose lock till the knob turned in his hand and the door swung open. The gloom-filled room stank of rotting rags and mold, but Gage was used to worse. He slipped inside the windowless space and located the nearest oil lamp before swinging the door shut behind him. His fingers slid along the edge of the lamp until they found the box of matches he knew would be there. The light of the match glared against the darkness, and when he touched it to the lantern's wick, the shadows in the room gave way. The space was a crowded mess of broom handles and old rags. Buckets and brushes sat heaped on benches and hung from rusty spikes jutting from the walls at random angles, but none of that interested Gage. Slowly, carefully, he slipped off his jacket set it on a nearby workbench and raised his shirt and peered down at nothing. That couldn't be right. It had just been there, clinging beneath his shirt, scraping against his ribs. He could see the red scratches where it had broken the skin. Ugh. There were no punctures, thank the stars. And at least it was off him now. But what was it? And where had it got to? He reached for his jacket, but stepped back when it gave a small shudder. The blasted thing had somehow latched onto his jacket when he'd taken it off. Well, it was trapped now beneath the ragged fabric. All he needed to do was lift his jacket up and slap a bucket down over the thing, and it would be the janitor's problem next day. Too bad Gage wouldn't be around to see what it was, though he could maybe loiter nearby when the next janitor shift started. Might be worth a good laugh. He grabbed a bucket, 
reached over and slammed it upside down onto the workbench. Gotcha. It's already amusing me because I'm just imagining that going so very wrong. (laughs) Oh, I had so much fun writing that particular chapter and those scenes. Oh my gosh. So much fun. Oh, that's good. Because I had fun listening and, and hearing it. What a treat. So where can we buy Lost and Found? So Lost and Found is available wherever books are sold. You can find it also at my website. If you're interested in getting a signed copy, you can go to SharonSkinner.com and check under the books section and you can pick up a copy there and it will get signed and shipped to you and you'll have a nice signed copy of it. But you can also get it at IndieBound, Barnes & Noble, Google Books, um, that big swishy place, all of the places where you can get books, uh, it's available. So please, you know, help yourself, whatever is your preference. It's also available as an ebook. And I have to do a little shout out for myself because I did recently get a lovely Kirkus review for the book. So if you're interested in seeing a lovely Kirkus review for the book, you can go to Kirkus and look up Lost and Found and get, get to read my lovely little Kirkus review that says it's an engaging read and that I know what I'm doing. Yay. Congratulations on the review on the book. And thank you so much for, for like you reading to us feels like one, you enjoy it. And I think that's wonderful, but it also felt like a joy for us to hear it and to be read to. So thank you so much for reading, for your generosity, for doing the voices and for being my guest today. Thank you so much for having me, Yvonne. This has been joyful and fun for me. I do enjoy it. So I so appreciate you for hosting this venue for authors. Thank you.